I don't know how you guys define fun church, but that works really good for me. Somebody was telling me the other day, I was bugging him, it was a guy that I know that Keith Engberg wrenches on him at Home Depot all the time. and He said, well, I don't know, you know, blah, 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 busy, blah, 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 song service too long, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, if it could be like that 24 hours a day, it probably can. I don't guess that God's the limiting factor of that, but you could sign me up for long song service. Amen? Okay, last week, just real quick, um, we talked about lukewarmness. We, we read from uh, Revelation chapter 3, the Laodicean church. We read from Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. And we talked about the words that we've been getting from the Holy Spirit about a gift, a spirit of repentance coming on the church that we need to um, actively pursue, receive, agree with the spirit of repentance because the church in general, right, I'm not naming names like not, you know, this church at this address or whatever, but, but the church in the West is seriously lukewarm. And, and to be quite honest with you, in many ways I think we are very lukewarm. Uh, the Lord convicted Teresa and me both of lukewarmness. So, you know, if you're feeling a conviction, that's awesome. But I, I'm talking to me. I, I almost thought about getting a little mirror and just sticking it right here so that, so that I could be preaching to myself as I'm preaching to you because all I am is the guy with the microphone. It could be any of you. But lukewarmness is an issue that we all have to be very, very conscious of and repentant from, right? It's not okay. Um, when we prayed Wednesday night... Uh, Gary Williams, who's just, I don't know, in the last couple of years, the Lord has just really been touching Gary Williams. He's 72 or 73 years old, and um, he told me about a month ago, he said, Pastor, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning how to hear God's voice. I know now how he speaks to me. I can hear him when he speaks to me in his word. I hear the still, small voice. It was just beautiful. Well, I always, well, I don't always, but, I, but the Bible teaches about this wide path and this narrow path, Right? Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many will pass on it, but narrow is the way that leads to life, and few will pass on that, or, or, or pass through the gate to eternal life. And truth is truth, and error is error. There is no gray area. There's no shoulder on the narrow path before you get to the wide path. You're either on the narrow path or you're on the wide path. That's just how it is. It's truth. But Gary made an interesting observation. He said what he thinks of it, what he calls it is the narrowing path. And even though this is truth, and out here is error, from the perspective of walking with Jesus, it is a narrowing path. Because he doesn't awaken us or enlighten us to every issue of our life all at once. It'd be like if we got a, a, a spiritual trip to heaven, and we got to stand before God on his throne. In, in all of his glory, our response would be to fall on our face. Because in the presence of his perfection, we would be so amazingly aware of our imperfection, that it would humble us to our face, right? So he doesn't give it, he doesn't, we aren't, we're sanctified positionally, like we are the righteousness of God in Christ. If the bus hits us that minute that we get saved, we're going to heaven, despite that nothing maybe has changed in our life yet. But there's also a process of sanctification, as the Lord makes us aware of things that don't look like Jesus, and if we'll accept that that needs to change, then he will provide the grace to allow it to change and it was a beautiful picture to me of what Gary said he's like when I first started it was a wide path I didn't know from anything and then God started to make it narrow and the longer I walk with the Lord 
The path narrows. Now, the truth is always the truth. But it's beautiful how as he works with the Lord, the path that he's on is actually narrowing. And that's an awesome picture for us to have. Especially as we start today. Now, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. I've been threatening it for a while. I'm actually going to start doing it. Seriously, for me, this this is like, I don't know, maybe I'm like becoming big boy pastor or something. I'd be so afraid at the beginning, gosh, what am I going to talk about for 15 minutes or 30 minutes and one scripture? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I had to cut it off when I was finishing my notes because you'd be here till Wednesday. One scripture. But, but it's a meaty, meaty bit of scripture. Um, ever watch a movie and they'll show you like, you know, the train wreck happens and then the next thing is, Two years earlier, right? You know, they kind of, the best way for them to tell the story they're trying to tell is to give you the end and then jump to the front. As, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's the way that I want to present it to you. I want to give you the end so that you can see how Jesus closes the, what is like the most awesome, I mean, all the Bible's great, but the Sermon on the Mount is like, if you were the guy in China, right, they have one Bible and there's 50 house churches and everybody, they rip out some pages. If you're the church that got the Sermon on the Mount and you didn't get any more, you're probably okay. Because Jesus is concise. It's all squished down to where if you just did what that said, you would walk well with Jesus. So let's start at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and then we'll go to the beginning, okay? Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 28. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, because of that, because that on that day, many people are going to come to Jesus. They're going to stand for their judgment. And he's going to be like, I don't know if he's going to do this like they did the Roman thing, but you're either going to get in or you're not. Your eternity is determined at that point. There's no opportunity to say, okay, well then let me just go have a do-over. Your only do-overs come now. Your only opportunity to please God through faith come now. Right? And his grace is abundant if your heart is sincere to repent from those things. But what he's saying is, he says, on that day, many are going to come to me, and I'm going to say, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but Lord, what about all this stuff we did? I don't know. How about a do-over? Too late for that. Therefore, because of that, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. What's the difference? In the Laodicean church, what was the indication of lukewarmness? Jesus said, I see your deeds. And you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. The wise man, the foolish man, 
to do or not to do. I'm no Shakespeare. But I think the doing is the key. It's not the hearing. It's not the understanding. It's not the assimilating. It's not the hanging them on your wall. It's the doing of these words that determines whether or not your house is fastened to that rock foundation. Because the storms and the rains and the winds are going to blow. But if, if you're not fastened to that rock foundation by doing the things that he's, a, that he's just told you, because this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Now we're going to go to the beginning. We're here. What are those things that I should hear and then do so that I might be like the wise man and not the fool and have my house fastened firmly to the rock? I think doing is the key. So the Sermon on the Mount then starts in Matthew chapter 5. It ends at the end of Matthew chapter 7, it starts with what's called the Beatitudes. And it's these eight things that Jesus teaches. And it's cool to me because I've read the Beatitudes a thousand times. And, and, and most of those times i just blown right past them because they, didn't, they didn't really speak to me. I mean, I could understand, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Right? I mean, I could, I could intellectually assimilate most of what he was saying, but, but it hadn't gotten into my heart. And I've been praying, and I've been reading, and I've been praying, and I've been reading, and it's like he's just blowing me up with this stuff. Eight things. The first seven are character attributes. They're, the whole Sermon on the Mount is basically the king telling his subjects what life in the kingdom should look like, what your character should be shaped like, how you should respond to different things, how you should interact with other people. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And the Beatitudes are this really cool series of things where he makes a description and then he describes the fruit of that particular thing. A characteristic, a, 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 a part of who you are brings this blessing. Every one of them starts with blessed with. Now the eighth one is more of a situational thing where you get, um, because of your character in the world that you live in, you can find yourself in this place of persecution. And it doesn't always look like being nailed to a cross. It doesn't always look like evil words to you. But it, sometimes it looks like, man, my friends never call me anymore. Why is that? It's because the change in your life is painful for the person who's not saved. Because there's an empty place in their heart that needs filled up by God. And you are convicting to their flesh. I never stopped liking my old friends. I never stopped loving my old friends. I never desired not to have fellowship with them. But something happened to us that hadn't happened yet to them. I pray it does happen to them. But we don't hang out with them anymore. They're not interested in what all you do is talk about Jesus. It's all I think about. Matter of fact, when I don't think about Jesus, it makes me a little nervous. Because I don't want my mind anyplace else. I've told the Lord, you can have, I don't care if I never have an original thought the rest of my life. If every thought could just come straight from your kingdom into my brain, nothing else, I'm okay. I don't need to be a guy who could generate a really interesting thought. I'll just have yours, thank you. I don't want anything else in there. Okay. So let's read the Beatitudes real quick, and then we'll talk about the one that we'll talk about today. Matter of fact, we won't even finish it today. It's so cool to me. Matthew 5, uh, we'll go 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. You know, before I go on, 
I'm reading these Beatitudes a thousand times, and I'm praying, Lord, I don't get it. Jesus didn't explain anything. He just said what they were, just said them, just like that, left it out there. Maybe because the scripture, um, Teresa quotes it all the time, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's to the glory of a king to search it out. So maybe the answer is, is in this word, but he's not going to make it so easy that you won't constantly be pressing in and looking for the answer to these things. And I'm telling you, you probably know this more than me, but I'm seeing that, that it's amazing to me the things that I've seen a thousand times. I've heard them preached on. Smart guys preach on them. And it doesn't work until I've really sought them out. And then it's like blows up. Okay. He opened his mouth. Blessed, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, meek, or humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 10 through 12 is the situational one. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two keys in there, right? First is what, and then what do you get? The poor in heart. I, I, Heidi Baker, we've, some of you know Heidi Baker, some of you don't. If you don't, Google her, get her books. I mean, there is a broken lady that is so surrendered to the Lord that it's just, her teachings stir me. Remember we talked last week about kind of the cure for lukewarmness is to eat. And when you eat in the spirit, it makes you hungry. You eat more. So I've been reading John G. Lake. I've been reading Heidi Baker. And as I, as I feast, as I eat on the testimony of the Lord through those powerful lives, it makes me hungry for more. It makes me want to go and I pray. It causes me to recognize my spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what God is saying is that there's a, there's a poverty of spirit that's necessary in order to have this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Gosh, I'm about to get ahead of myself. Poor in spirit can also be translated as not spiritually arrogant. The church at Laodicea was spiritually arrogant. And, and they were deceived in that arrogance, right? The, the poor in spirit recognize that I can't do anything without you, Lord. I have to have you, Lord. Oh my gosh, the, the, the spiritually poor would see the, the absence of the kingdom and cry out, God, you have to do something about Diane's arm and her shoulder. You have to do something about the hip pain. You have to do something about the cancer. You have to do something about the person who's going to spend eternity in hell. And I can't do anything without you because I recognize the poverty of my spirit compared to the fullness of yours. Empty me, Lord, of me. Fill me with you so that I might experience the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm just going to read you again from Revelations 3. I want to give you some pictures of um, poor in spirit and spiritually arrogant. 
And, and the Laodicean church is a, is a perfect example of the way Jesus addresses them. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have... Be-. See, this is the deception. This is us. I mean, to some extent or another, it's all of us that live in this Western culture who have food in our cupboards and, and money in our pockets. And, and we might feel like we're poor because we have TV and the TV shows us the stupid, crazy richness that other people have. So by comparison, we think we're poor. But if we were to do the same thing and compare ourselves to 98% of the rest of the world, we'd be thanking God for the wealth that he's given to us. But see, we get our eyes on... The, the natural, it's the natural eye that says, I'm wealthy, I'm rich, I don't need anything. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know, this is your spiritual situation, you do not know, Laodicean, that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Jesus says, I, adv- I advise you to buy from me, Jesus, gold refined by fire so that you may become truly rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I say, I have to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. See, he hasn't yet spit them out of his, or spat them. He hasn't vomited them. That's the real word. I mean, the the translators did nice for us and called it spit, but the real word is he pukes them out. It's like it's so vile a taste. It messes with his stomach so bad that he vomits them out. But he hasn't done that yet because he loves them. He would reprove and discipline those that he loved. Those are not words of hate. Those are words of love. They're the disciplinary words of the Lord to his church saying, listen, you have wandered so far, Ephesus, so far from your first love. Your deeds are no good. Repent and be zealous. The poor in spirit would examine themselves. They would humble themselves. I keep trying not to use the word humble because that's a different beatitude, but you can't, dis- you can't disengage humility from being poor in spirit. They cry out for eyesaf, for white garments, and gold refined by fire. The spiritually arrogant... I'm going to read this to you because I really feel like it's, it's the, the Lord's words. The spiritually arrogant deceive themselves by extending the boundaries of God's love and grace to allow themselves a place God doesn't offer in the kingdom. You understand what, that, what I'm saying there? Right? Spiritual arrogance says, I understand that you think I'm lukewarm, but you've got to understand I got this job, and I got this wife, and I got these kids, and, 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 and there are certain things, Lord, in my life that I just need these TV shows because they relax me. See, that's how spiritual arrogance talks. And, and, and what spiritual, spiritual arrogance does is it creates a place in the kingdom that God doesn't ordain. It says, because you love me, and because of your grace, I'm okay. And Jesus says, you might be for a minute, but you're right on the end of my tongue and you're heading this way, right? That's spiritual arrogance. Now, is there grace? Does God love us? Oh my gosh, a love that you can't even imagine. I can't even imagine it. But the point is we can't assign relationship metrics. Uh, That's a terrible HP word. Um, the The way God defines relationship with him and with his son by his love and his grace, because that's not. It's his love and his grace that allows us to have that relationship, but it's not the definition of that relationship. The definition of that relationship is that you would confess Jesus' name as Lord. 
And then you would live your life in such a way that he would be Lord. As that path narrows to your perception, even though it's never any wider than it really is, that's how he defines relationship. That by faith you would believe that you needed a Savior and that he's it. It's not by his love and it's not by his grace. His grace is for us because we fail at walking out his lordship perfectly. But when it's the place of our heart to have him as Lord of our lives and we stumble, God looks past the stumble to the heart. Ah, I got that heart. Grace says it's okay. You get to stay in my mouth. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 30 is the story of the rich young ruler. Another picture of spiritual arrogance, if you look at it through that lens. As he was setting, he, Jesus, was setting on a journey. I love the way this one begins. This is why I picked Mark. A man ran up to him and knelt before him. So here comes this rich young ruler, and, and he sees Jesus, and he must have some sense for who Jesus is, and he runs up to Jesus, and when he gets to Jesus, he humbles himself before Jesus. It, it starts out so good, like he understands. And knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. So from the time I was a munchkin and I could understand them, I've been right there with you. Kept them all. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. See, he had lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard, will, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There were even more, or they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. First thing to notice, and maybe this was just my own aha moment, is I always equated the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, with salvation. I never really was sure that I could hang my hat on that truth. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks for eternal life. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with the kingdom of God. So Jesus attaches eternal life with the kingdom of God. A little bit further on, his disciples say to Jesus, how would one be saved? And then Jesus responds again with the words eternal life. So I think there's a connection in this thing. He's talking, the rich young ruler is talking about eternal life, about being saved. The word saved in there is the Greek word sozo. So if you ever heard us talk about the sozo ministry, it's literally 
Two words primarily that you'll find in the Greek that are translated to salvation or to save. One is soteria. Soteria, the Greek word, typically primarily applies to eternal salvation, right? That, you, that your, your eternity is secure in, with God if, in fact, you have soteria. The second word is sozo. It's used many more times, and it implies a much broader sense of salvation. It includes that salvation, because it's used here, that, that would, be, would be eternal life. It includes the freedom from torment, that you would be free from torment. From, uh, in Isaiah 50, wherever, where it describes prophetically Jesus, it says his peace, some, his, I forget what the words are, but basically that he would bring us peace. Uh, Hebrew shalom. So it means that this mental torment, this spiritual torment that we might have is paid for and covered in sozo. And then the third thing is literally physical healing. Jesus said in, I think it's Matthew, I don't know, wherever he heals Peter's mother-in-law, that this is what was prophesied. So it, it says also about physical healing. So when you hear the word sozo, it's the full package. It's everything. And that's the word that the disciples use. So when they were talking to Jesus, they said, how can someone be sozo? And he says, well, it's impossible for man. It's a matter of fact, it's so hard for a rich person. And I'm really speaking to all of us. For a rich person, it's easier for you to suck a, a camel through the eye of a needle. And I don't care whether it's the eye of a sewing needle or if it's the little door that they were talking about to get into Jerusalem. It doesn't matter. It's, he's saying it's really, really hard. Impossible sometimes for a person, but not for God. What's the difference between man's ability that's rich and God's ability? It's grace. Grace is the bridge. It's how the rich young ruler could have had salvation, but he chose not to. He made a decision. He weighed it up, just like we talked about last week in Luke uh, 14, I think it is, where Jesus says, count the cost. Before you build your tower, figure out how much it's going to cost you to build. Before you go with 10,000 guys to fight a king with 20,000 guys, figure out whether it's worth it or not. Before he says all that, he says, listen, if you don't hate everything that's precious to you, including your life. Don't walk this road with me. You can't be my disciple unless your commitment, your passion, your zealousness is that strong. And that's what he was saying to the church at Laodicea. He's like, you lost your zeal. You're lukewarm. Repent and be zealous. The rich young ruler, spiritually arrogant. There's got to be a different way because I don't buy the way. He was lacking. Jesus showed him, all this stuff is wonderful what you did, but you lack in this area. Should all of us sell everything we have and give it to the poor? I don't think so. But if we were to say humbly from our poverty and spirit, Lord, what do I lack? Is there anything that I lack? And do what he tells us to do. Eternal life is ours. Spiritually poor. Kingdom of heaven. They connect. John chapter 6, verses 52 through 69. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> Sorry. I almost forgot what these scriptures were. <laughs> How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, manna in that case. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, and here's, this, here's the ones that haven't found their way to spiritual poorness, to poverty of spirit yet. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. The rich young ruler withdrew, didn't walk with him. It's too much, you're asking too much, there's got to be a different way. Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's poverty of spirit. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Jesus, I don't mean seeker-sensitive to be a four-letter word. I don't know if you're even familiar with it. If you're not, then pretend I didn't say it. I don't believe that seeker-sensitive is a bad, necessary thing. We want to be sensitive to people, to seek out people with sensitivity that don't know Jesus. But to seek them out with a watered-down, greasy-grace gospel is not the truth. Jesus did not preach a sloppy gospel. He preached only the truth. He said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, how does that make you feel? Does that make your stomach retch a little? Does it bug you? You don't like to hear that? Well, you've got to eat it, and you have to drink it, or you can't even have the kingdom. What are you going to do? And the ones that had that spiritual arrogance, they said, nah, too much. And they walked away. But Peter, he said, Lord, man, I left everything. We did. We, we walked away from everything to follow you. Where would we go but you? You are the ones with the words of eternal life. And then Peter says this thing that is so beautiful to me. He says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, before they came to know, they believed. They by faith, Jesus walking down the beach, he's like, hey, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They're like fishers of men. I never had that job before. I hope it pays as good as fishers of fish because that's what puts food on my table. It, it, it's amazing to me. Maybe there's something missing. It's just not recorded in the stories. But the way the stories read, they're like, sweet. Left their dad, left the boat, left the nets, everything they'd invested in. Off they went, followed Jesus. So they could be a fisher of men. They didn't know him to be. They believed him to be. And from their faith, you receive Jesus by faith. And then as you see him heal a shoulder, as you see him touch your heart, as you see him transform your life, you come to know. Peter made that same. He said, Lord, we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what's the blessing of being poor in spirit? Maybe there's a million, but there's two. The first one is in, is in the verse. It's the kingdom of heaven. If we will cry out to God... 
in our spiritual poverty, recognizing that the only place to be is, is spiritually impoverished, that we might have his spirit, that we might inherit the kingdom of God. One of the blessings of poor in spirit is the kingdom. But the second blessing is hunger. When you're poor in spirit and you're open to recognize it, you're going to be hungry to get filled with spirit. The blood, more. You're going to want more because you're going to be aware. You're going to be conscious. And honestly, you'll be humble. If there's a gap between the standard that Jesus paints for us and the, you know, he paints a picture of his standard. And we look at a picture of ourselves. And if they don't overlay each other perfectly, if there's some delta, some difference between the picture that he paints for truth and the picture that we see that's reality, it's okay. But if there's a gap between what he says is truth and our desire to get there, that's not okay. Because the minute that that's the case, when, when you came from so far over there, different from this picture, all the way to here, and you say, you know what? I'm 98% of the way to being like Jesus. I think that's going to be good. I'm just going to be okay with the difference. As soon as you're comfortable with the difference, guess where you live? Lukewarm. Lukewarm. See, Jesus told the Laodicean church to repent and be zealous. Zeal and passion are super uncomfortable because they're insatiable. You can't satisfy zeal. You can't satisfy passion. No matter where you get, if you're zealous, there's more to go. It's like, oh man, if I could get... It's the way the world is, right? Man, I got a little car and it's 20 years old. If I could just have a new car, I'd be satisfied. I don't care what kind of car, God. Just give me a new car that has a warranty and everything works the way it's supposed to be. And Oh, I got this new car, but... Oh, this car's bigger than my car. I have to have the windows down because I don't have air conditioning in my little car that's new. I need a bigger car. I'm zealous. I'm passionate. I'm passionate for more. That's the, that's the passion of the world, fed by the spirit of the world. That's being in that river thing that I showed you in that little video last week. Zealousness for God is uncomfortable because it won't be satisfied. The time that we get to satisfied is the time that we've stepped into lukewarmness. So, I hate to say it because I'm the guy that I always want everything in a neat package. I want to be like, okay, you know, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to work there until I retire. I'm going to make money. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to understand my pension and my this, and everything's going to be perfectly aligned. Turns out life's not like that. I mean, oh my gosh, it sure wasn't like that for us. Therese, remember? Where were we going to be right now in our life plan? Ryan's about... 33, Joe's 26. Honestly, we're living in Fort Myers, Florida on a 40-foot yacht, leased. I'm not kidding you. We had a plan. And we were going to do that for a few years, keep the house. Kids could live in it, don't care. The house was on the lake, not on a lake anymore. And and then we were going to get an apartment in downtown Chicago. Because for my job, all I had to have was an airport. It didn't matter where in the country I lived because I was responsible for all of it. I mean, for my little piece of HP's world. I had a plan. Turns out it wasn't God's plan. My passion was in the wrong place. Next thing you know, I'm standing up here in front of you sweating, right? You're probably not sweating as bad as me. You have fans. 
Amen. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna next week on every chair is gonna be a thing, and you guys can just go like this. <laughs> My point is that when the Lord convicted me and Teresa, I mean, you know, compared to a lot of people, we probably look zealous, but we weren't zealous because we you can't, God doesn't grade on a class curve. Man, if I could just be a little better than somebody else, I'm okay. Everybody can flunk on God's curve because it's an absolute curve. Everybody can pass on God's curve because it's an absolute curve. The deception is to try to compare ourselves with somebody else. Well, I must be zealous because I'm more apparently zealous than that person, so I'm okay. That's a deceptive thing that will cause you to wander into lukewarmness. So the prayer of the broken heart. Next week we're going to talk more about uh, this poor in spirit. And we're going to look at, at contrition, the contrite heart that God is in love with. To see deeper into what he's saying about this thing of, of, of poor in spirit. But the prayer is to say, Lord, if there be any spiritual arrogance in me, please, please take it away. Show me my filthiness. Show me the places where I need to put the salve on my eyes and the, and the parts of me that are covered by this white garment, Lord, and, and refine the gold, the fire of my person into that pure gold because at some point, it's all going to be tested. It's all going to be tested by fire. And that which is pure and true and honest to what you said is going to come through and it's mine forever. But the stuff that's wood and hay and stubble, Don't let me waste any time or thought or effort on that. It's junk. It has no eternal value. That's the prayer. As you're reading the scriptures, that's the prayer. Lord, through your word, show me my heart. Show me where I'm arrogant in spirit so that I can be humble and I can get down on my knees and I can cry out. Break me for the things that break your heart. This is where all that comes from, is spiritual poverty. Okay, let's pray together. Gosh, I just prayed, didn't I? Okay, now you pray it. Father, I, I just, forgive me, I'm not, I just feel like I need to be down here. It's about the only place to pray. This in a comfortable chair. Father God, I just thank you so much. I thank you just personally for me that, that you can continue to enlighten me. And then when, when eternity comes, you are an infinite God. There is no end to your glory. Your train never stops entering into the temple. There, there are facets of your glory that a gajillion years from now, we won't even have scratched the surface. Thank you, God. Thank you for revelation. Thank you for knowing you. Humble us, Lord. Please help us to desire humility, Lord. Help us desire that poorness of spirit that will keep us away from lukewarmness. That I wish that we could be satisfied, but I understand that to be satisfied, Lord, it, it's the end of zeal and it's the end of passion. And you've called us to passion and to zeal. So, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, each and every one of us would cry out for passion, cry out for zeal, that we would run from lukewarmness, Lord to passion, and to zeal. And Lord, I just pray for every person in this place, spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit, Lord, that the manifestation of zealous pursuit of Jesus would be overflowing spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. 
that that fruit would be manifest. Because, Lord, in that fruit, if we're that bowl of fruit, we're your city on a hill, Lord. We're your lamp that's been placed on a stand that would light up the whole room, God. And I pray that spiritual arrogance would be squashed out so that spiritual gifts will flow, Lord. I pray that your prophetic voice will flow, Lord. We pray. You say to be, what's the word? To, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gifts that edify the body, Lord. Prophecy, tongues, interpretations, Lord. My heart burns for healing and miracles, Lord, that you would confirm your word with signs and wonders, just like you did for the early church. I guess most of all, God, and I thank you for this, because you're, you, I don't know how much is, is a little or a lot, but I know it's, it's, a, it's a good and a growing amount is that you have placed a banner of love over this house. And that banner of love is only there because it's on every heart that's in this place. Lord, I'm glad that when somebody comes, they feel welcome. I'm glad that if a girl is pregnant and single, if she's committed sexual sin, Lord, that, that your church can love her because you love her. Doesn't mean it's okay, but that's, that's between you and her, Lord, but that your church will embrace her just like you embraced us in our sin, Lord. While we were yet sinners, the Father sent the Son. So, God, I thank you, and I ask you for more. Let's say that together, more, please. More, please, Lord. Ask God to cause you to burn with passion, to be zealous for Jesus, because anything less is so dangerous. Thank you, Lord. As the Father sent Jesus, he sent us. Lord, let us go as you sent Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.